welcome, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the inaugural event of the hashtag Social Humanities Network. Never Hillary versus Never Trump, the US election on social media. Before we properly begin, a few introductory notes. The network uh, Social Humanities is sponsored by Torch. And the basic aim is to explore social media from the perspective of the social sciences as well as the humanities. So we, we love big data, but we also like the people and the human behind big data. And we currently have over 20 members from over 15 different disciplines, ranging from anthropology and history to entrepreneurship and even evolutionary biology. We're exploring three themes this year. The first theme is tools and methods for analyzing social media data, broadly speaking. And so after this panel discussion, we have this wonderful uh, hands-on interactive analytics workshop that um, will delve into three sets of social media uh, data in, in more detail. And in December, um, on the 10th of December, we have this hackathon that's been planned at the business school in the launch pad. So if you're interested in that, please let me, Catherine Eccles, or Ross Holmes know during the reception. Uh, next term, the theme is going to be emotions and mood. And in Trinity, the theme is going to be identity and narrative. So we'll have events uh, that span things like sentiment analysis and, and selfies. Again, if you're, if you're keen to be involved, please have a word with us during the reception. Right, so as the title of this event suggests, the uh, 2016 US election has nothing positive um, about it. And in fact, um, it's, it's quite over in the title. And, and frighteningly, it's only one week away. Out of curiosity, how many people in this room are able to vote? Great, how many have already voted? Oh, not bad, okay. I haven't, but this week I will. Um, so the, the, the basic choice now is between two evils, and this has been called, uh, well, they've been called the most despised candidates in electoral history. There's a lot of negative campaigning coming uh, from both sides about each other, as well as from the general media and indeed social media about both of these candidates. So everything is negative. And the second thing to note about the title of this event is the use of hashtags. So this is the first true social media election, as many commentators have noted. Traditional media and indeed the two parties have lost a lot of power over public opinion and the control over what is acceptable in the debate. Social media is playing an unprecedented role in determining um, the interaction that candidates have with, with the voters and potential voters and, and the influence as well that candidates have over these voters via things like advertising and bots, memes, hashtags, and various other mechanisms. So we'll now hear from our three wonderful panelists uh, about various dimensions of social media's role in the US election of 2016. We'll each, they'll each have eight to 10 minutes to present one of these dimensions, and we'll have a moderated Q&A after that, followed by a general Q&A with you in the audience. Afterwards, we'll have a lovely wine and cheese reception in the exhibition space that you might have seen on your way into this building. And for those of you who have tickets, we will then go to lecture theater two for the actual uh, hands-on workshop bit of the day, 
I apologize that that does happen after the alcohol, so it might be a bit, the results could be a bit biased, but please bear with me here. It was nice to have the reception after the workshop, after the uh, discussion. So without further ado, um, I'll introduce our first panelist, Gemma Joyce. Gemma is a social data journalist at Brandwatch, and she finds the stories that matter in social data. Delving into the numbers on everything from pop culture to politicians, she's provided political data to journalists throughout a tumultuous 2016. Her work has been featured in publications including the Financial Times, Wired, Business Insider, and PR Week. You can find her on Twitter at GLJoyce. Hi everyone. Um, as soon said, I'm Gemma. I'm a social data journalist at Bramwatch. Uh, just to explain a little bit about what we do, uh, we're a social, a social intelligence company. Um, we work with some of the biggest brands in the world. And we monitor and analyze uh, mentions and conversations from across social media, across about 80 million plus websites. Um, and so we work with all these massive brands, but political data isn't necessarily something we do with them. Uh, but it's still something we're really, really interested in as a company. Uh, and that's where the Brownwatch React project comes in, and that's something I work on a lot. So we've been providing live election data and commentary to our followers and readers uh, and the press all the way back to when there were about 100 people running for president. So from all that, we've tracked millions and millions of conversations and billions of mentions of the candidates. Uh, and it's just come up with, as you can see, an unspeakable amount of data points that are all really, really interesting. So if you try to ignore my scribbly annotations here, uh, which I suppose kind of demonstrate how much data there is, uh, here's our look at mentions of Clinton and Trump in the first presidential debate. Uh, at one point, Trump got 30,000 tweets mentioning him in a single minute, and that just gives you an idea of you know, how enormous uh, the conversation is. Uh, just to clarify, this is set on a 10% sample. Uh, so it's no wonder the amount of mentions are this way. The candidates have been uh, interacting with voters across social media um, in the kind of more traditional places like Twitter, Facebook, their websites, uh, but also on kind of lesser known corners of the internet like Reddit. So there's a huge amount of conversation and data to talk about, but I've come along today armed with about three data points uh, which I hope will start a conversation with you and it's all under the umbrella of who is talking about who. So I'd mainly be discussing Twitter data today, uh, but we'll do more from different data sources in the workshop if you're coming along. So I'll start by sharing my data uh, on gender. So, oh, throwing away my slide, here it is. So uh, when you're looking at the number of tweets directed uh, at a candidate, it's important to look at the volume of tweets, but it's also really interesting to look at the number of unique authors, the number of individuals talking about them. So with that in mind, looking at unique authors talking about the two candidates, broken down by gender, you can see there's a fairly similar ratio of people talking about, of men and women talking about both Clinton and Trump. Uh, both of them are kind of skewed towards male authors. Uh, this fits fairly neatly with our data that says there are slightly more men on Twitter than females. Uh, but things get a bit more interesting when we compare this with the actual volume of tweets directed at the candidates. So you'll notice as I switch slides, uh, there's a boost in conversation from female authors, especially when it comes to Clinton. They're actually out-tweeting men. 
What we're seeing here is that while there are less female categorised tweeters talking about the candidates, they're actually tweeting at a much higher rate per person, especially when it comes to Hillary Clinton. Another instance in which we see a higher uh, you know, boost in female conversation is during the debates. So this graph shows uh, the volume, but there are very similar spikes when you look at unique authors as well. So during each debate, uh, which generate kind of Super Bowl levels of, of conversation, women have been out-tweeting men. So I think the reasons for this probably lie outside my field of expertise. Uh, but I would probably say a lot of this extra conversation is down to the prominence of Trump's uh, treatment of women, especially in the debates. So if you look at into the mentions of the second spike, which was uh, the one that most, uh, had the most tweets from females, the kind of main terms being coming up in the data were locker room, respect for women, etc. Um, so yeah, that's a bit into gender. That's nugget number one for you. Uh, next, I'll move on to how the candidates address each other on Twitter. So I'll start with Trump. Uh, this graph shows the top used terms from his Twitter account going back to September the 1st. So he's quite a sporadic tweeter. Um, he tweets anything up to from 1 to 267 times a day. Uh, and Clinton's record is 95 in this time frame. Uh, so aside from popularising the nickname Crooked Hillary, um, looking at Trump's tweets that are directed at her, either through app mentions or just normal mentions of Clinton, um, about 15.9% uh, of his tweets are aimed at her. And there's a big difference there when you look at Hillary Clinton's tweets. Uh, about 31.4% of her tweets directly mention or talk about Donald Trump. This really struck me. I did a lot of work around uh, the Vote Leave and Vote Remain campaigns um, during the EU referendum run-up, uh, and I found that Vote Remain were talking about Vote Leave a lot more than Vote Leave were talking about Vote Remain. And you can kind of see the kind of establishment, can establishment candidate or the status quo talking about the change and fueling that fire a lot more, I guess, in Hillary Clinton's tweets as well. Uh, there was also a kind of overlap with Trump's directness, uh, if you look at his tweets, uh, and the way that he asked people to donate um, and share the message. Uh, that was very much kind of like what uh, Vote Leave were talking about as well. They were saying, agree tweet if you, if you agree. Whereas Remain uh, and Hillary Clinton are a little less direct in asking people to show their support. So now I'm going to go on to my final nugget of social data, uh, and this is looking at the role of influencers on the election conversation. So when I talk about influencers, I don't necessarily mean celebrities, although they do have their place. Uh, as more of the way we do and see politics moves into the digital sphere, the people that are the key players in these massive networks who influence vast swathes of people uh, are really important, I think, to identify and to see how they behave. So we have a tool called Audiences, which identifies accounts of interest. Uh, it searches key terms in your bios, uh, or your bio or your tweets, and it assigns an influencer score, and that's based on a range of criteria from your follower to following ratio, or the amount of engagement you generate, or the quality of people that you are engaging with. So you get this score. It sounds a bit like an episode of Black Mirror, 
but it's actually really useful in finding people who make an influence uh, on the political conversation. So a while ago we looked at the most influential democratic accounts on Twitter, so looking at people who identified as a Democrat. Uh, not all of them were fans of Hillary Clinton. Um, I think, at, oh no, not at the time Bernie was still in the race, but the, this was what came up uh, when we looked at the top ten. So within the democratic accounts we found a lot of people, not just in the top ten, but the larger group, that were well-known people who were high up in the campaign or, or well-known in the media. And that was kind of what we saw with that. But when we looked at Republicans, uh, once again, not everyone supported Trump, but you found a lot more organisational accounts, a lot more people who were well-known, and a lot more normal people, uh, people who weren't influential for things they'd done, but influential because of their place uh, in the Twitter sphere. We also found that they were, uh, on average, by more influential in terms of their influencer score than the democratic accounts, which was really, really interesting. And I think this, more than any other data point I've seen, kind of goes to show this establishment versus grassroots campaign going on. So that's the social data I have from Twitter. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> panelist is Matthew Lee Anderson. Matt is the founder and lead writer at Mere Orthodoxy. He is the author of Earthen Vessels, Why Our Bodies Matter to Our Faith, and The End of Our Exploring, a book about questioning and the confidence of faith. As you might have guessed, uh, Matt is currently pursuing a DPhil in moral theology at the University of Oxford. He is a perpetual member of Biola University's Tory Honours Institute. Thanks very much. I am a theologian, which means I'm not an expert in the internet or American politics, but I am an American, and so I appreciate this opportunity to uh, use some of the many hours I have lost from my dissertation watching this election very, very closely. If this year is our first social media election in American politics, it has also produced our first Twitter candidate. The 140-character prose stylings of Donald J. Trump have been widely scrutinized and, if the candidate himself is to be believed, widely praised. <laughs> His flamboyant approach to mass communication serves as an interesting contrast with the muted, restrained professionalism of his opponent, Hillary Clinton. But in, in addition to affording a fascinating study in political communication, their respective social media strategies have also become focal point for questions about leadership, temperament, and the presidency. Trump's social media habits are so notorious that they generated the first debate question in American political history about a candidate's use of a social network. In the closing minutes of the first debate, Hillary Clinton mentioned Alicia Machado, a Miss Universe contestant whom Trump had once denigrated. The bait was laid and Trump took it. Four days later, he sent off a string of tweets about Machado at 3 a.m. that were even more derogatory. The maneuver was part of a long-running scheme by the Clinton campaign to accentuate Trump's instability and pettiness, and it worked. You've got to really think about the character of someone, Vice President Biden said the next day. What type of leader awakens at 3 o'clock in the morning and sends these sorts of tweets? This guy wants to become president? 
So the question was put to Trump himself at the next debate when Anderson Cooper rather pointedly asked whether tweeting at 3 a.m. is the, quote, discipline of a good leader. Trump's word salad response masterfully combined a two quoque fallacy with an apophasis, suggesting that Hillary had sent her own 3 a.m. tweet, but that he wasn't going to mention that. He's a, he's a master of this form of rhetoric. Uh, Trump's deluge continued, as he mentioned Benghazi, name-dropped one of Clinton's friends, and waxed philosophical that Twitter is a, quote, very effective way of communication. The soaring oration, though, reached its climax in a moment that will doubtlessly go down as one of the finest lines of American speech-making. Speech I'm not unproud of it, <laughs> he said, to be honest with you, which simply gave the American electorate the, all the proof that it needs that Donald Trump is simply Ralph Wiggum's grown up and come to life. If you don't know this reference, just Google it. It's very funny. This is how I get through the election, humor in the Simpsons. It's the only way to survive. More seriously, though, the contrast between Clinton and Trump's Twitter habits are a microcosm for deeper and more significant differences between their campaigns and between their appeal to their respective uh, constituencies. Despite re repeated attempts to constrain him, Trump's feed has retained its unfiltered and personal quality, reinforcing the impression that he is an unconventional politician, not beholden to the norms of Washington, D.C. As you can see, Trump often strings together blunt, inflammatory assertions and then names the appropriate emotional response for you. Jeb Bush may have tried to artificially inflate the enthusiasm for his campaign by sticking that wonderful exclamation point in his logo. But it's actually Donald Trump's native form of speech. The website 538 found in June that some 70% of Donald Trump's tweets had used at least one exclamation point. The appearance of such raw and boundless enthusiasm gives Trump a Falstaffian quality which despite his wealth helps him pass one of the most important tests for the American electorate, the would I enjoy a beer with this person test. The exclamatory is a form of speech perfectly suited for Trump's constituency who happened to be in an exuberant revolutionary mood. Clinton's Twitter presence is by contrast anodyne and impersonal, which is what most Americans have come to expect from their politicians and what many others have grown to despise. Tweets are carefully curated by our digital media staff and so have none of the spontaneous edge that makes Trump's Twitter presence so entertaining. And yet, Clinton has had her moments. Her most successful tweet of this election happened when she broke with professionalism to deliver the snarky Twitter maven uh, line, delete your account after one of Trump's insults. The, the out of character punch landed the tweet was retweeted some 500,000 times, as you can see. Despite its success, though, the tweet sounds more like a 20-year-old Twitter native than a former Secretary of State. While its popularity was doubtlessly due in part to its uncharacteristic role within the campaign, it reinforces the perception that Clinton's public presence is, if nothing else, extensively manicured. Trump and Clinton's different social media approaches fit with their constituencies and are central to their appeal. Clinton is a familiar and stable voice in American political life. Her virtues and her vices were, even by the time the campaign started, well known. And there have been few surprises. She is a consummate po politician. 
who has been battle-tested against charismatic upstarts before. And as she has framed her campaign as carrying on Obama's domestic policies, she has a strong interest in Americans be believing that things are, on the whole, going well. Unsurprisingly, then, Vox concluded, after analyzing 4,000 of their tweets, that Hillary has been, quote, more positive than Trump. Trump's constituency, by contrast, is angry, and Donald Trump has acted accordingly. I will wear the mantle of anger, he told us in the primary debates in a line that I think sums up this election perfectly. The alienation from political life that Trump's working class voters feel is accompanied by a native distrust for career politicians, politicians who have learned to exude the professionalism that Clinton's uh, public persona clearly displays. There may be only two categories of candidates for such voters, politicians and people like us. Trump's raw and unmannered social media stylings make it clear which category he falls into. While media personalities mock Trump's incoherent grammar, his voters heard only someone who was one of their own, who hadn't yet adopted the cadences and polish that come from being a lifetime resident of the Beltway. Trump is not so much leading his constituency then as making them visible, representing them in arena, arenas where they have in recent years been overlooked. Trump's ability to fake authenticity, his willingness to flout convention, and his spontaneity are central to why he has resonated so strongly with significant portions of the American public. Pew Research found that 46% of people 46% uh, of people support him either because he is a political outsider or because he, quote, tells it like it is. Despite being a member of the elites, Trump has been selling to the working class his whole life, puncturing the aura of respectability by offering insults. Oh, so many insults on Twitter. <laughs> Rather than policy prescriptions, makes Trump, like it or not, seem more like one of the guys than Hillary Clinton. Even so, Trump's social media use has been a double-edged sword. Not surprisingly, given, given those many insults, temperament has been a far more prominent category in assessing the fitness of our candidates than in past elections. In an interview with President Obama that was released beneath the long shadow of this campaign, the historian Doris Kearns Goodwin proposed that temperament is, quote, the greatest separator in presidential leadership. For her part, Clinton has repeatedly suggested that someone who is liable to get into a Twitter war should not be trusted with the nuclear codes. Trump often attempts to turn these sorts of criticisms into strengths, as he did in responding to the, the his 3 a.m. tweets. He suggested that he would at least be awake to answer the phone call, this trope in, in American life, meaning he'll be prepared to respond to a crisis. In the same vein, he argued in the first debate uh, that he has a, quote, much better temperament than Clinton, uh, not one for understatement he went on. I think my strongest asset, maybe by far, is my temperament. I have a winning temperament. I know how to win. <laughs> what precisely a winning temperament is remains somewhat obscure. And anyway, Trump's own constituency doesn't really believe him. Pew found that 34% of Trump supporters rate his temperament and his unpredictability as their top concern about him. Which is simply to say, the merits of Trump's social media approach have also, in his unrestrained hands, undone him. Authenticity, or the ability to fake it at least, has become an incredible asset in a social media age. 
The alienation American voters of all sorts have from their elected representatives is real, and the professionalization of our political class creates a divide that makes them feel inaccessible to the rest of us. Social media's promise was that it might help overcome such a gap and give voters a sense that our politicians are real people with lives not so different from our own. Yet if Trump has that authenticity in spades, he lacks the self-discipline that should go with it. His central political virtue is also his chief vice. The temperament that has made him a highly effective user of Twitter has also made him a dubious candidate for the office of the president. Thanks very much. Fantastic. So our third and final panelist is Philip N. Howard. Uh, Phil is the Professor of Internet Studies at the Oxford Internet Institute and Balliol College. He is the author most recently of Pax Technica, How the Internet of Things May Set Us Free or Lock Us Up. He blogs from philhoward.org and tweets from at pnhoward. Thank you. So this has been a fabulous panel, I think, because um, in order to understand what social media means for contemporary politics, especially elections and advanced democracies, you need to have a sense of how people fit together in their networks and what keywords they're using. You need the, the rhetorician's craft to really understand how messages have appeal. And what I'm going to talk about today is the process of automation. So one of the things I love to study in elections is, is negative campaign tricks. So the, the tricks that campaign managers use, uh, roll out, especially in elections like this, uh, to manipulate voters, to manipulate public opinion. And I, sent, I think a sense of the structure and a sense of the rhetoric involved and a sense of the negative tricks, the way of manipulating media, um, is important to understanding why this technology is used as it is, how it's used, and why it's used the way it is. Um, what I'm going to talk about, um, for the most part, are bots. <coughs> bots are chunks of code that are written, designed, to automate the interaction between a user, a user account and a human. Um, to some degree, uh, I'll talk about how humans respond to bots today, but most of the examples I have are of um, good bots and bad, uh, ill-performing bots. Now, uh, when we study automation, uh, we try to use the phrase, uh, we try to refer to highly automated user accounts. There are very few accounts, most of what we study is Twitter, there are very few accounts that are uh, pure bots, that have no human curation. And what makes it actually very difficult to study this, this problem, or this phenomenon, is that some of the accounts appear to be clearly mechanical, uh, spitting out content in a, clear, in, in a, a cleanly programmed way. Uh, the more human curation an account has, the tougher it is to distinguish an automated account with political content from uh, a human tweeting passionately about politics. And so you'll hear me start to refer to highly automated accounts. This is an example of one. Um, it started uh, this month, October 2016. Uh, it's tweeted 1,800 times so far, has 60 followers, three likes, and is very much a critic of Trump. And um, one of the nice things about studying this particular, particular election is that uh, Trump is fabulous at generating tweetable content, right? He, he's generated most of the hashtags we've, we've ended up studying. Uh, because of his words, his word choice makes it um, um, provides good fodder for both critics and, 
and his fans. Bots operate uh, for Trump and they operate for Clinton. This is an example of a, a Clinton bot, uh, or several Clinton bots at work. One of the ways we identify a bot account is if they tweet exactly the same piece of text at the same second as dozens of other accounts. Uh, so this was uh, something that went out several months ago from uh, hundreds of accounts, um, all with the same message. Uh, Trump's bots operate the same way. One of the things we don't do in our research, we're not quite at yet, is uh, linking the work of bots with particular campaigns. So we know that automation has a role in contemporary campaign management strategy. We can't say that Trump is paying for these bots, or we haven't established that connection. Just in American politics, as many of you may know, there's a, a complex system of political action committees that spend money in the direction of a candidate. So our theory, our hypothesis is that most of these accounts are generated by friends of the campaign. In Trump's case, some of the accounts are set up by uh, lone libertarians working off in the political hinterland, operating on their own. Most of Clinton's bots are done by friends uh, in the extended network of the Clinton family. Um, one of the things that makes this interesting uh, as a form of political communication is that it's not clear it's illegal activity. There are many things that are uh, count as negative campaigning, and in the U.S. context, there's uh, very little that's illegal. Um, one of the few incidents involving bots uh, in an illegal act in the federal campaign, in the campaign for president this year, was the sharing of poll data between campaigns. So a political action committee and a candidate are not supposed to collaborate closely. Uh, there's uh, not a lot of clear instructions on what collaboration means, but we know it's not supposed to mean uh, sharing money or intelligence, poll data. We found, um, we didn't find, the, the CNN found a Republican candidate working with a Republican PAC sharing budgeting information, planning information, and polling data in the open. Uh, one bot would tweet out the code, this had been encrypted, encoded, tweeted out openly in public, uh, the candidate's bot would retrieve the data, decrypt it, and this was open sharing of information. Um, the courts found this to be open, uh, cl clearly a case of campaign coordination, and um, um, several, one person went to jail, both organizations were fined. But this may be one of the few examples of how bot activity is actually illegal. We can talk perhaps during the Q&A about how automated political communication may be unethical or bad for democracy, but, but it's not clear that it's illegal at the moment. Um, one of the other few ways, um, one of the few ways that bot activity might be illegal is in bringing down a candidate's information infrastructure. This is um, another Republican campaign manager who did time, was um, convicted in 2002 for hiring hackers to attack an opponent's robocall center. Now, one of the few statistically significant predictors of having a voter show up on election day is whether or not they received a voter call, a robocall the previous night. Gender, race, ethnicity, no longer so valid for most advanced democracies. It's, it's whether or not you had an automated call center call you to remind you to vote. If you take down an opponent's robocall center, you disable an important part of the communications infrastructure. Um, and this, uh, for better, for worse, I won't even say for better, for worse, 
is now one of a, the common tricks um, to contemporary campaigning. Um, this is the only fellow I know um, I know of who actually did time for uh, who was caught doing it. Let me say something now about what automated traffic on Twitter looks like. Um, for the last few presidential debates, we've been gathering the, the conversation. We're tracking between 55 and 75 hashtags per debate. I'll present just the results from the last debate, right? debate number three, and I'll, I'll give you the storyline of what has changed over time. So um, our black line is the um, traffic, the number of tweets using fairly neutral hashtags like debate 2016 or USA president. Things that, that, hashtags that don't come with a lot of ideological baggage. Uh, the red are, are Trump tweets, uh, and that's a family of uh, fairly angry, uh, coarse, um, descriptive tweets associated with uh, Trump and Trump's campaign. The blue Twitter traffic uh, is the traffic that is generated by accounts tweeting with pro-Hillary messages. And I fully agree that uh, Hillary's hashtags seem to be slightly positive and connected to public policy ideas, and uh, Trump's hashtags tend to be not positive and not connected to public policy ideas. On the whole, Twitter, you'll say, you'll notice um, from this conversation, was uh, mildly pro-Clinton, um, predominantly big waves of pro-Trump traffic. The, the waves are um, daytime, nighttime traffic, uh, daytime, nighttime in the United States. We had the day before the debate, three days afterwards. One of the nice findings here is that the peak of debate traffic for all three debates was actually fairly civil. It's driven first by humans, mostly, and it involved the relatively neutral hashtags. So if there's, if there's a critical message here, I'll, I'll deliver that in a second. The positive message is that Twitter is still a relatively useful political communication media for the majority of Americans in, in the moment of debate. Right? So just around the hours of debate, people use Twitter to talk politics in a way they, um, uh, they wouldn't otherwise, perhaps, on Twitter, um, and without the ideological baggage that uh, comes from, from the other tweets. Now, um, in terms of what is automated for this, we notice that over time, um, between 10 and 20% of all the traffic was generated by these heavily automated accounts. That is, accounts that load up content and spew it out on a timed basis, that automatically retweet. And we found on the whole that Twitter's, uh, that uh, Trump's highly automated accounts were more aggressive, tweeting much more frequently. Uh, Clinton also has her highly automated accounts, but in our last, in the last debate, um, Trump's robots out-tweeted Hillary 7 to 1. So um, the major campaigns spend time as much as possible automating political communication with potential voters. And the Republicans, uh, in terms of developing technologies, tend to be more aggressive, spend more money, um, invade privacy, violate most people's privacy norms, um, and, uh, are, uh, um, and uh, are much more effusive over Twitter. All accounts, um, all in all, we counted some uh, 25 million unique users over the course of our three debates. Um, one of the ways we identify bots is that they don't go to sleep overnight. Sometimes they keep going. 
Um, they generate 100,000 tweets a year plus. They have nonsensical pictures. Uh, they tweet soccer scores, football scores for an extended period and then are suddenly pro-Trump. And unfortunately, the best way to identify a, a bot account is often by hand. Um, the machine learning algorithms for identifying bots are not very effective at the moment. Now, I'll end just by saying that uh, automated political communication is not simply a problem for the United States or modern democracies. We found them in Venezuela, uh, tweeting for the far right. Uh, we found them for both Brexit and um, Remain, a stronger in campaigns. Um, and we found them tweeting about Syria. Often, bot accounts are used to choke hashtags, to prevent anybody from learning anything useful. Uh, the Syria hashtag has been one of these targets uh, for bot attacks to prevent the public, uh, people outside Syria from learning about what's really going on. And so that's the picture um, of what, um, what I think automation looks like now for contemporary political crises. Thank you. you're all burning with questions after that tremendously multi-dimensional uh, lens on, on the debate. Before that, we'll have 20 minutes of uh, moderated questions. And I'm trying to exit this so I can get back to the title slide. It just keeps getting smaller. <laughs> ah, it stopped. This is actually a limit to how small it is. No, it no, keeps going. This is amazing. I'm having too much fun. Sorry. How do you uh, escape? Okay, there we go. Right. Great. All right, so um, let's begin by talking about authenticity uh, and, and bots, if there's any connections we made between these two things. So uh, Matt, you spoke about how Trump's ability to, quote, tell it as it is, is an important aspect of his appeal to, to voters. And Phil, you just spoke about the substantial number of automated posts that are tied to, um, to Trump's campaign. So are these two forces related, and, and how are they? So for example, is, is it that if you're more authentic in whatever way that means, does that drive more bots to, to retweet and promote your content? Is there any kind of relationship between these two forces? I'll let you go first. Um, I think uh, automation certainly helps get, uh, sorry, um, authenticity, being authentic certainly helps you get more followers. I'm not sure that bots respond well to authenticity. They tend to respond well to um, canned commentary with hashtags that they've been programmed to watch for that um, may be particularly popular. So um, I'm trying to think of one of the few things we noticed about, uh, uh, about how the bots are agile um, is that they responded in the third debate, they, Trump's bots started early well before, hours before the debate actually began, mm -hmm. but not in, not in response to anything authentic he said okay. over Twitter. Um, they were pre -pro as a strategic thing, they were set to get ahead of the debate. Can I ask it just a very basic question about these bots? Mm -hmm. um, do they have any audience? So, so one of the things with polit political communication is you need someone on the receiving end of this, and as a uh, semi-frequent user of Twitter, it's pretty easy to tell who the bots are and so even if you have to do it manually it's, it's you know it's not that hard to figure out what a bot is and what isn't um, obviously campaigns are investing a lot of this because it works for something um, but does it really I mean it, the one bot that you mentioned that had 60 followers 
how many of those are other bots mm -hmm. and how many of those are real human beings that they're actually communicating? I think there was a, a time, maybe uh, ten years ago, eight years ago, when bots were useful for padding follower lists more than anything. Does that mm -hmm. seem right? And now I agree it's, it's difficult to know what the audience for bots is. It's also difficult to connect bot activity to any changes in public opinion in the uh, polling numbers. Mm -hmm. And we, I mean, we might want to be afraid that there is a connection and, um, you know, every little trick that gets you a percentage point or two might make a difference in a close race. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, bots often argue with each other and they end up in these <laughs> locked chains of interaction that nobody ever sees. Um, but that doesn't mean people won't spend uh, a thousand or two thousand pounds on, on an automated campaign. And I would love to know what, what bots, how bots get used in marketing, because mm -hmm. this is, many of the best ones are essentially marketing bots. Mm -hmm. Sure, I mean, I'm no expert on bots in marketing, um, but I definitely say they're good for, even if nobody follows them, they're great for boosting a hashtag up the trending list, for example, and that's mm. gonna get media attention across the world, potentially. Um, and yeah, you're right, bots can be difficult to point out, and even by hand sometimes. I mean, if you're dealing with a data set of, of a very small number of tweets, sometimes you can look at one and it, it will have maybe 200 something followers. Uh, it will tweet about a variety of things, it will have a fairly generic picture, but you're still wondering whether you should leave it out of the data because it could be a person, really. Um, and sometimes it can be quite difficult by hand to do it. You can Right. Well, both uh, you and Gemma, Phil, mentioned the importance of, of hashtags in, in this election, and I happen to be doing my whole defil on that subject, uh, only in the context of Brexit. And I was wondering, um, well, tying this into something The Guardian said, The Guardian published something that, uh, recently about how these community-generated memes, uh, of which hashtags are a, a vast subcategory, have grown to play a very big role in the discourse, and are similar to the role that the classic printed cartoon used to play. I'm um, wondering if you agree with this, and also if there's any particular, um, particularly powerful memes and or hashtags that have emerged that you've been aware of, and how, on a whole, the collective universe of hashtags relevant to this debate have revealed certain dimensions of, of the discourse. Any, anyone? Um, sure, so I think uh, there are innumerable amount of hashtags that were really interesting. Like uh, I saw one today that was like drain the swamp and, and etc. Um, sometimes hashtags uh, are really interesting because people don't necessarily use them to be pro-Trump or, or pro-Clinton. Um, and that's where I guess sentiment analysis could come in to see if these hashtags are being used maybe sarcastically. Um, etc. And that's where sentiment analysis often falls down because people use them so sarcastically. Um, <laughs> so I think the hashtags, even if it's a pro-Trump one trending, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's doing really well. Mm -hmm. And I think picking that apart and picking out whether that's because he's done well or because lots of people are hating him is really difficult. I'm, I'm not sure I buy the comparison with political cartoons. I think one of the uh, nice things about print media is that, um, as as a, in, is that 
the print media let a polity imagine itself as a whole. So you know, we have this, in many democracies, we have this fantasy that, that the print media, um, that editors choose content, they check their facts, and we have some confidence that the, se that the edition of the newspaper you pick up in Oxford is the same as the, or awfully close to the same edition uh, you know, printed in London. And these newspapers and the political cartoons created an extended national dialogue about issues that everybody had roughly the same level of access you know, in terms of, uh, to, in terms of facts. And um, Twitter does not uh, allow for that same kind of standardized curatorial um, work. In fact, it's the opposite, right? It uh, allows people to self-select. We call this elective affinity in, our, in political communication. When people choose to um, see certain kinds of content. And one of the nightmare scenarios um, for, for me for this election would be that bots get used um, in a significant way on the night before the election to do something that discourages voter turnout. So um, a Hillary Clinton is dead message. Don't turn out, don't vote. Hillary Clinton died last night. If, if that was released in a massive way with the votes, with the, the bot networks that we've seen, it would you know, be refuted, but not for 48 hours. Right? And it would drive, it would affect voter turnout to several percentage points. And uh, it's not clear that anybody, like, given the quality of conversations that have gone on, it's not clear that something like this wouldn't happen. So that's different from the, the role of cartoons and editors. It'd have to be a more subtle message, probably. It wouldn't mm -hmm. be Hillary is dead. It'd be, in the States, it'd be she had a stroke. Right. There, there have all sorts of been all sorts she had of a stroke. She's no longer alive. Can you explain the rhetorical difference between having a stroke and, and being dead? Uh, one, one's going to be more believable to a lot of people, right? Um, it'd be um, too serendipitous for a certain constituency. It's terrible to say, right? But this is how the American electorate is, electorate is right now. Um, it'd be too serendipitous for her to die. It'd seem too obvious, but a stroke plays on the sort of health anxiety, the anxieties about her health that have been um, uh, an underground feature of this campaign until a month ago, whenever she sort of stumbled, when it sort of popped up and was made visible for the rest of us. But to that point, there had been, within Trump's constituency, all sorts of conspiracy theories floating about. Um, and I, I, I wholeheartedly expect something like this to happen. Can it will play the same role as the 360 million for the NHS thing, right? right. Whatever the, the that number was that the NHS was going to get out of Brexit, the falsehood that uh, we still talk about. Right? It's a useful falsehood. Mm. Right. Um, I wanted to go back very quickly to the mainstream media versus social media divide. I put that in quotes because I think there are quite blurred boundaries between these two. And, but according to um, professors John Naughton and uh, Zeynep Tefeki, uh, Trump's rise to power demonstrates, well, two things. A, the rise of social media, of course, but also that mainstream media don't have control over what's acceptable for candidates to say in public. Um, and journalists used to be these gatekeepers, and there's this term called the Overton window. Um, it denotes the, the narrow range of policy that are viewed as acceptable to talk about. And so now the window has been smashed, and uh, the key influencers, which Gemma mentioned, on social media, they're the ones who are actually driving this conversation forward, and virtually anything is, is acceptable, um, as it seems. So there's a couple of questions here. So to what extent has traditional media lost its gatekeeping power? And also, to what extent has mainstream media injected itself 
into social media because we, we kind of are aware that uh, even you know Facebook, for, well, especially Facebook and Twitter, um, the, the mainstream media have paid celebrities to post content on their behalf. Um, and they've also, there's been talk of, for example, Hillary Clinton's campaign paying Twitter, for example, to suppress a negative hashtag about Hillary. So it isn't quite the voice of the people, um, as you might imagine it to be. So are there any thoughts on, well, those two things? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of, I, I'm skeptical that traditional media has lost its power. Um, uh, Donald Trump rose in part because he was granted millions and millions of dollars worth of free airtime by uh, news media. I mean, he, he, he's, as a showman, uh, he knows how to, that's what he knows how to do. That's basically all he knows how to do is put on a good show. Um, and so his press conferences and his speeches became these cable news uh, uh, events and cable news devoted hours and hours to Trump uh, events during the primaries that the other candidates simply did not receive um, and it's hard to say that that doesn't like have a real impact on his uh, success in this election he's not just the Twitter candidate he's he's a creature of um, a media culture that he understands better than probably all the other Republican candidates and has known how to to maximize them better than them. But I mean, on, on the bias within, uh, on paying Twitter to suppress hashtags and sort of that sort of thing, different medium, but Facebook. Um, I mean, one of the more significant stories around politics and Facebook from earlier this year was um, the revelation that um, their team, they had an internal team that had sort of curated the top trending lists and seem to be doing so in a pretty partial and biased way, selecting out certain conservative stories. And, um, and that was actually a decision that Facebook had made internally, not asked by a campaign. Um, and they, they since, because of the sort of outcry, had to switch. And so now that top trending list is done by algorithm. Um, and mine has definitively changed since that happened. Like it's, I, I see a lot different stories, sadly. Um, so that, 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 those sort of structural, the, the sort of structural complaints that have conservatives have had in the States with the traditional media are now showing up with social media and they're starting to get worried that social media is not as neutral as it uh, was positioned to be. I would certainly say, um, as the mainstream media supposedly loses its power um, and we're all opened up to this kind of world of new ideas all different from our own actually social media and the way that we use it um, does act especially on Twitter and Facebook like, an, like basically like an echo chamber and you only see views that are, are very similar to your own um, and I definitely saw that not necessarily in US elections although I'm sure it's happened but in you know how shocking uh, the fact that we voted leave was for so many people, um, I think was probably very much down to the fact that they just thought that what they saw on Facebook was how everyone thought. Um, and I think this kind of trending topics thing on the side is definitely really important as a story, but I don't think it's necessarily where people would go for their news. I think they'd just look at their feed. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Um, just to pivot a bit now to negative campaigning. Um, I'm looking into this myself for my own research, and there's this giant literature out there, and there's no kind of conclusions about whether negative campaigns are actually effective in terms of getting voters to, um, to vote for the candidate who's bashing the other candidate. And I'm wondering in this particular election, though, whether it has been seen to be effective, especially Trump's usage um, of, of insults, as Matt mentioned, crooked Hillary, that kind of thing. Even um, if you recall the, the act of love video that he made against Jeb Bush, that was a pivotal kind of turning point in his um, race to be the, the, the candidate for Republicans. And so how effective are negative campaigns in the context of this election? How much impact uh, do they have? Um, well, I would say we'd have, we'll have to wait, and it's only another week. That's true. <laughs> so you hope. Be you hope. I hope. Well, in terms of the social media measures of success, in terms of retweets, likes, comments about. Well, what we found in our, in our big data work is that negative messages tend to propagate more. They tend to get more retweets. They tend to be picked up by the bots to then push them a little bit further. Um, with interesting public policy ideas or clever, you know, clever observations, they get a little bit of retweets, but not a lot of retweets. It's angry messages with an angry photo. Mm. Um, negative campaigning in some of the other countries we've studied, negative, um, negative Twitter campaigns tend to focus on uh, female journalists and prominent feminist um, activists in countries. Uh, so they tend to target women. And, and whether they're effective or not, I guess in the US we'll see in a week or so. A lot of, a lot of small negative tricks each get you another percentage point in voter turnout. And so if you use them all, um, you might win. Well, you also mentioned uh, anger in, in your response there, and I was curious to hear more about emotions, um, and because Matt had, had mentioned uh, Trump's constituency being angry and the quote, you know, we'll wear the mantle of anger from Donald Trump himself. So, um, and this is, this is certainly in alignment with the studies that have shown that anger is the fastest spreading emotion on social media. But of course, on Twitter especially, there's other things at play like sarcasm and humor and general irony. Um, as well as um, fear, excitement, uh, these kinds of extreme activation uh, emotions. So what is the emotional landscape besides the anger? Are, are there other emotions that have emerged from either side? Are there differences across platforms? Is, is Twitter more angry than Instagram, for example? I can't say I've got anything on uh, on emotions as such, I guess it's not something we necessarily uh, uh, search for or are able to kind of categorise very easily. Um, I'd definitely say there's a lot of anger out there and that's just evident in the, the amount of people engaging with Trump's tweets and, you know, propagating them. Um, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to... I mean, it's the, the sort of negative campaigns that you're mentioning against journalists. Um, we've seen that in the states in this election. Uh, a lot of those have been race-based. Um, so uh, Trump supporters, a significant contingent of them are, um, you mentioned the, the libertarian sort of who's off writing in the internet wasteland. Um, uh, that group, the alt-right, they're called, um, have, have been um, uh, selectively targeting uh, a lot of Jewish 
writers and commentators on the election who have opposed, who are generally conservative, but have opposed Trump, the never Trump crowd. Um, and there, like, the anger has, it has a real toll on some of those people. So I've seen some of the inboxes of these folks and the messages that they get, and it's, and it's, it makes their job more exhausting, and which is partly the point. Um, from, from the sort of emotional standpoint, um, it's hard when anger and fear are so dominant for any other emotions to break through, I think. Um, I mean, Hillary has tried to, so she's one of her slogans that she says on social media a lot, a vote for Hillary is a vote for hope, right? It's a vote for the future. It's a vote for progress. And the problem with that is, one, that message is a little old, right? We hope, or the hope candidate was Barack Obama. Um, and two, Hillary Clinton, if you had to pick someone to be an emissary for hope for the future, she'd probably be the last person you'd pick, if only because she's been around for so long and has been so involved, right? Whereas Barack Obama, as an upstart sort of outsider coming in, could really play the hope emotion in a way that, in one sense, Trump is trying to play. There's, there's more similarities between Obama winning the White House and Trump. Um, you know, Obama was a, a, an outsider who, who needed to use that to leverage uh, people to believe that things would be different. Um, and now at the end of eight years, when a lot has changed, but the atmosphere certainly hasn't, um, anger and fear just, they, they just dominate. And so I, I, I look at Clinton's attempts to generate hope and, and say, That's, it's nice, it's Good effort, but it doesn't it doesn't feel doesn't have the sort of same resonance that something like the Obama campaign was able to to genuinely and authentically uh, communicate. Great. I think I'll ask one more question before opening it up to everyone here, um, which I guess goes back to the statement that Trump is the very first uh, Twitter candidate <laughs> in electoral history. So um, thinking ahead to the future then, you know, do, do you think it's possible that we'll see in the next election cycle the first Instagram or Snapchat, whatever other social media platform might have been invented by then, candidate? And the other dimension of this is, of course, the, the outsider perspective, the unconventional candidate. Are those kinds of people going to appear more and more as a result of the power of social media? Um, so, and also a third party as well, a traditional two-party system in, in the States. Will a third party candidate be a real possibility, again, as a result in part of the influence of social media? Um, I would certainly say there's a lot of scope for an outsider or, or a third party to jump in um, if they can generate enough buzz behind them. Um, it'd be interesting to see a Snapchat or Instagram candidate Kim Kardashian for president next year. <laughs> Kanye keeps saying he's going to run. I think, and he's got a massive following. He'd probably do quite well. <laughs> um, I think Trump being the Twitter candidate is really interesting because Twitter is seen as this kind of more left-wing platform, yet he's really taken off on it. Um, but I think a lot of it is probably down to bots and down to a lot of these kind of, like you say, dirty tricks. And, and like the people on the... Um, influencers I showed you earlier with the kind of regular people, there are all kinds of ways that uh, Republicans, or, and probably Democrats, but certainly Republicans have 
club together to boost each other's following and boost each other's uh, influence in, in the overall conversation. So I, do, I don't know if him being the Twitter candidate is necessarily a good thing or a genuine, a genuine thing to say. This question just depresses me. <laughs> As an American, thinking about uh, future Twitter candidates and Instagram or Snapchat candidates emerging, um, I'm, I'm skeptical still about the possibility of a viable third party uh, in, in American politics. Um, I don't, I, I, social media has a lot of promise. I don't know that it has this much promise. Um, if a third party emerges, it will be because the party system, the, because the, the two parties that we have, their internal power continues to erode. Um, there's a great article in The Atlantic this last summer by Jonathan Rauch, a great uh, a reporter who argued that America's politics are so polarized in part because the parties have gotten weaker rather than stronger and so um, you have more and more rogue actors who have more power um, I so I don't I don't I don't think that social media will, will generate a third party candidate I do think that we will see more and more of these rogue actors uh, come to the fore and if Republicans want the major question is for Republicans, if they're going to ever have a constituency again, is whether anyone who's respectable will be able to harness the energy of the Trump voters. Um, and if they want to avoid the unseemly elements of the party coming to the fore, then they need to reform their nominating process. Like that's that's the, the point that will prevent this from happening again. Um, yeah, I would guess that instead of um, a third party, the Republicans might break down for a little bit. Yeah. And, right, jettison their, their religious right and the Tea Party folks and come back as a more original, genuine conservative party. Um, I think we should, uh, before we open up to the audience, I think we should put a little perspective here. 90% um, of a campaign, presidential campaign's budget goes to television ad buys, hmm. not Twitter. Even for this election? Even for this election. Oh, right. the, um, a significant number of people use Twitter. Um, Trump may, it might be okay to call Trump a can Twitter candidate, but he's losing. And so it's unlikely that the next, and, and over multiple elections where there have been several different kinds of platforms, one thing that's been consistent is that the campaign managers hate it when their candidates play with media because the candidates, because they lose control of their candidates. And Trump's a great example of a candidate who's, who's, who cannot be controlled by multiple campaign managers now. So I would bet that there will be other platforms that candidates will always spend a couple hundred thousand bucks being present on, present on but um, it's never genuine, inter it's never, it has not been genuine interaction. It's been canned over so much and closely managed by campaign managers. I will say there's one, one American senator who you'll hear it here first, will run for president in 2020, who uh, is an active user of Twitter still, but in a, in a way that's closer to Donald Trump in terms of the authenticity and interactions with his followers. Um, and he will, he, he has the best chance of being the nominee in 2020 and saving the party, I think. Ben Sass is his name, senator from Nebraska. Junior senator, but, um, enormously talented and intelligent and very good at social media and understands it really, really well. 